0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Today on the show, we'll take a look at what you need to know about Chicago's winter parking ban.
1: It's one of those things where we're not really questioning why it is that we're doing something like this. We have this built-in cash cow for this private company to just go in and tow these cars on days sometimes when it's 70 degrees and sunny.
0: But first, remembering Black Panther leader Fred Hampton.
2: I don't believe I'm going I got a bad heart. I don't believe i will going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I will be able to die as a
0: revolutionary in the International Revolutionary proletarian struggle. And I think that struggle is going to come. That's the voice of Fred Hampton. He was a leader in the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s. Today marks 50 years since Chicago police officers shot and killed Hampton as he lay in bed at his West Side home. In the late 1960s, Hampton organized a multiracial alliance between the Black Panthers and other groups in Chicago. They included the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican gang-turned civil rights organization, and the Young Patriots, which was mostly made up of working-class white migrants from Appalachia. The alliance was called the Rainbow Coalition. Fred Hampton was just 21 years old when he was shot and killed, but his legacy looms large in Chicago. Joining me now to discuss Hampton's life and work is attorney Jeff Haas. He represented Hampton and other Black Panthers at the People's Law Office. He's also the author of the book, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. Jeff Haas, welcome to Reset.
2: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: So tell us just a bit more about Fred Hampton and how he became connected with the Panthers.
2: Well, Fred was a dynamic young leader from the early age. He was a tremendous speaker. He memorized the speeches of Dr. King and Malcolm X, and he and he went to his church and listened. And he put together sort of the energy of a rapper with the vision and the cadence of a of a preacher and somehow he, when he spoke to crowds and you heard just a little bit of that in your in your entry in your introduction there he really could move people whether it was law students whether it was uh, Hispanics uh, Puerto Ricans Appalachians and of course particularly people in the black community uh, whether it was welfare mem- members or gang members Uh, all of these people were very much affected by, uh, Fred was very effective in organizing them and reaching them and, and mobilizing them.
0: When did you first meet him?
2: I just met I met Fred when I went to the speech that you played a part of when he came out of prison in the August of 1969, and he had been sent down there on a bogus charge of taking ice cream from an ice cream vendor, for which Edward Hanrahan, the ambitious prosecutor and likely heir to the original Mayor Daly, gave him two to five years. And he came back and spoke in a church, and my partner Flint Taylor and I were there, and I think I listened to him, and I listened to his story, and he made us all stand up and then didn't made us, but it said, stand up and say, I am. And I said, I am. And he said, a revolutionary. And at that point, I was a young lawyer for the movement, but I didn't consider myself in the movement. And but by the fourth or fifth time, I was chanting and believing it as much as everybody else. And it was a really powerful, powerful speech. Uh, And I think that energy of Fred was why he was picked to be the chairman of the Black Panther Party. He was being considered for a national central committee of the party and why he was targeted both by the local police and ultimately were learned, of course, by the FBI.
0: Now, the Black Panthers based their work on a 10-point plan. Can you just explain how the plan worked?
2: Well, the 10-point plan was actually pretty pretty basic. It included land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And they called for an end to mass incarceration, police brutality, and the drafting of black people into America's wars. Some of those demands don't seem so crazy or so different from what Black Lives Matter and other groups are demanding today. And I think that's that format... Uh, Uh, It's partly a socialist platform, but it's partially saying these are human rights. We should all have the right to a decent education, to to medical care, things that are very much prominent today. And the Panthers were not saying we're going to win a revolution. We want the people to demand those things. And right now, today, I think people more and more are saying these are things we should be entitled to.
0: Part of Fred Hampton's legacy includes his organization of a multiracial alliance Um, called the Rainbow Coalition. Who was a part of that alliance, and and what were their shared goals that brought them together?
2: Fred, as you said, uh, it was Fred Hampton, it was the Panthers, it was the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican group that uh, started as a gang and ended up organizing against the urbanization and the... Kicking of Puerto Ricans out of the Lincoln Park area, um, and the Young Patriots, who were more or less immigrants who had come from West Virginia and Kentucky from coal mining families, poor Appalachians who had migrated to Chicago. And they suffered many of the same things. Two in particular, they, they suffered police brutality and really bad housing, uh, as well as bad schools. And so they came together around these issues uh, that affected all of their communities. And that was another way that Fred was a threat. And he also attempted to bring the gangs together in Chicago, uh, particularly the Blackstone Rangers and the Disciples. And he met with the leaders. And he said, we should be doing things for our, for our community, not uh, not against our community. And it had some resonance. I can't say that everybody uh, accepted it. The Disciples did a little more than the Rangers. But that potential, I think, was what also really made him fearful in Chicago, that he could create a new power base here.
0: Where do we see his legacy at work today in chicago
2: well I, I I see the the campaign and the amount of organizing that went into exposing and then getting the killer of Laquan McDonald prosecuted is one of the areas that we we see it today and Here was a police killing. Of course, we ended up with a video of it. But the community didn't stop. Black Lives Matter didn't stop. Black Youth 100 didn't stop. Assad's Daughters. I'm here all kinds of groups in Chicago came together, and they went not just to City Hall. They went to court. And the first Chicago policeman actually indicted for murder. And they kept that up, and he did get convicted. Uh, we also saw some of the remnants of how the police responded. The, the police chief covered up the Fraternal Order of Police, defended uh, the shooting of Laquan McDonald 17 times. Uh, so we saw that too. But I think that was one of the examples I think the follow through on what happened with the Burge torture cases that not only did they get rep- we get reparations for the victims, but actually uh, not only do we get some money for the actual victims, but reparations for the families a uh, recognition by the city of Chicago that they allowed and condoned police torture of blacks. so I see that that spirit continuing in that campaign against police brutality. We see it in efforts to end mass incarceration to provide bail for people. Uh, who have just been charged so in, in a number of areas i, I think the uh, the legacy is very clear and also some of the militancy of young people today now you're one of the attorneys who went after cpd and the fbi after
0: hampton's killing and lawsuits it took more than a decade to settle but in the process of getting those lawsuits through the court system What was uncovered about the federal government's relationship to his death?
2: Well, I think we originally filed it when it turned out that we the evidence showed that it was a shoot in, not a shoot out. Ninety seven police shots to one Panther shot that was fired after the person was hit because it went up into the ceiling Uh, and we exposed that and got the attempted murder charges dropped against the Panthers, we filed a civil suit against Hanrahan and the police. But in the course of this suit, in the course of the church committee uncovering things and also it being exposed that one of the key people in the Panthers was an FBI informant we show that actually this was not just a local ambitious prosecutor leading the police. This was part of the FBI's COINTELPRO program, a clandestine FBI program that targeted the entire black movement, including Dr. King, who they attempted to blackmail him with tapes of supposedly an illicit affair, but particularly the Panthers. And J. Edgar Hoover gave directions to every FBI office that had a Panther to destroy, disrupt, and neutralize the Panthers by any means necessary, prevent the rise of a young messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. And we think that's who Fred Hampton was to the FBI, and we think they targeted him. Not only do you have those mandates, what we uncovered was a floor plan that the FBI informant actually provided the raiders complete with not only the layout of the house where Fred Hampton, the apartment, but the bed where Fred Hampton would be sleeping. And sure enough, when we followed the trajectory of the shots, they went toward that bed, and as his fiancée, who was in bed with him, eight months pregnant, reported, after they pulled her out of the room, they went back in, and one police officer said, is he dead yet? And she heard two shots, and then she heard, uh, he's he's good and dead now. And it turns out that Fred Hampton was actually killed by two parallel close-in shots to his head. Uh, So it really was an assassination. They went there with a mission. The mission started with the FBI.
0: What was the result of those
2: lawsuits? The lawsuits, well, after 18 months of trial, the judge tossed the case out while the jury was deliberating uh, on the grounds that there wasn't enough evidence to go to the jury. We gathered the thirty three thousand page transcript, wrote an appeal in which we f- uh, filed under the na- and filed it and the last sentence was power to the people and Fortunately, we got a very good opinion from the Seventh Circuit who said there was more than enough evidence to go to the jury on the federal conspiracy to kill Fred Hampton and we got a new trial. And that eventually led to a settlement of $1.85 million for the families of Hampton and Clark and the other survivors, four of whom were were actually hit with bullets, were wounded, and three of whom were ch- illegally charged.
0: What do you think the loss of Fred Hampton meant for the Black Panther Party and for social justice movements as a whole in Chicago?
2: I think it certainly frightened a lot of Black Panther members and all of us. If the prosecutor who's supposed to use the law can be in charge of police who murder somebody in their bed at 4.30 in the morning, what kind of justice can we expect? And I think in many ways people did somewhat leave the party. I think in terms of the city of Chicago, there were two legacies. One, I think on the negative side, I think gangs and drugs became more prevalent absent the leadership of the Panthers and Fred Hampton in particular – On the other hand, a coalition came together, and particularly led by the black community, that might have been divided on the Panthers, but were not divided on a young black leader being murdered in his bed at 4.30 in the morning. And so that coalition of the black community and liberal whites was actually the coalition that I think elected Harold Washington mayor some years later.
0: It's the time of year when city parking gets trickier with more rules and regulations. Chicago's winter ban went into effect earlier this week, and more than 200 cars were sent to the impound on just the first night of the ban. WBEZ data editor Elliot Ramos stopped by to break down what you need to know about the ban and how to avoid getting your car towed.
1: So this is not the two-inch ban. This is just on certain streets. So we're thinking Milwaukee, Division uh foster clark devon archer madison uh it's it takes the fact that three o'clock in the morning and it goes till seven o'clock in the morning and it's an automatic tow they just take it right off the street at three o'clock sharp
0: and what is the point of the band what was the purpose for it
1: So there was this big blizzard back in 1979 that shut down Chicago. And as a result, Blandick, who was mayor at the time, uh, he sort of was faulted for his response to it. So not yet Mayor Jane Byrne, she campaigned on it. And she won her election based off of having a snow plan implemented, which went into effect in 1980 when she took over.
0: When we look at how the ban is being applied today, 250 cars (laughs) towed that first night. Is it doing what it's supposed to do?
1: So this is one of those things where we just kind of are on repeat all the time. And it's one of those, it, it's, oh, it's part of Chicago pastime. And it, it's just how we do things here. And it's one of those things where we're not really questioning why it is that we're doing something like this. Uh, it was put in effect in 1980. Whether or not it's it's supposed to clear the road so the, the plow trucks can get out can get out and about but most people will notice that it's not snowing mm-hmm. and most of the time it's not snowing when it's in effect it's essentially a, it's a it's an insurance policy on the effect that like if it does snow but this thing was made before we were able to track weather a little bit better, and that's not to say that weather can't happen and you have a surprise sort of buildup of snow. But this is before the internet. This is before we had GPS trackers on all of our plow trucks and before we had a centralized response uh, called Snow Command. Mm.
0: What kind of data do we have on the number of cars that get impounded on days when it's actually not
1: snowing? So the vast majority of the time, uh, it's it's not snowing. So like one winter, it might have only snowed five days, and this is for a four month period. So you're talking about like 122 days, and only four of those days may have saw snow. So I think that was in 2017. We had five, six, seven, eight, eight days of snow uh, before the year before that. There was only seven, um, and then last year we actually had a really snowy weather, but it, it extended before and after the the ban. So this is the other thing that's happening is that now with these these weather changes and these polar vorti- vortices, <laughs> um, you, you don't you really can't predict it. And we have this winter inflexible ban, and that's kind of like one of those things that this is sort of the easy stuff to address. What happens when the really hard stuff comes about?
0: When we you know think about okay, who wins and who loses? Who benefits from this parking ban?
1: It's the private towing contractor that the the city hires. It's uh, United Road Towing. Um, we pay them about $130 for every tow that's performed. So even if somebody doesn't pay up the fees, um, they get paid 100% of the time. So if we have a $150 tow fee and they're getting $130 of that, um, that means that they're getting most of the money. And the city will contend that this is not a a revenue generator. And I I can actually verify it's not. We're losing money on it, Um, that it's for safety reasons. But it's one of those things where this – We have this built-in cash cow for this private company to just go in and tow these cars on days sometimes when it's 70 degrees and sunny.
0: Wow. Who who gets hit the hardest?
1: Wicker Park, believe it or not. The band is on Milwaukee and Division. And for those who know Wicker Park uh, know that most of the parking there is residential street parking. So when people go and park on those major streets... Uh, they get scooped up. So they're, they're hit one of the hardest.
0: So you said the city's losing money on this. Do we know how much money we're talking about? Because we just had to close this $838 million budget gap.
1: So I, I've been doing a lot of uh, just the towing program as a whole. And um, I could pretty much say that like when you factor in all the pensioned uh, streets and sanitation workers that work the impound lots, uh, we have field investigators that accompany these guys. And then you we, we're also paying out the the tow truck companies. So- at best, we're probably breaking even, but there's all sorts of unforeseen costs and logistics in doing that, so you can't really quantify the full, full scope of it.
0: Well, part of the concern is that many people who have their cars towed, they can't get them back, and, and the city sells them. Do we have data that can tell us how many of these cars that are being towed during the ban are actually being sold by so the it's city? So it's
1: about 100 a year, um, and a lot of people think that, like, well— don't park there. But for $150 for some people, especially if you're underemployed or unemployed, is not easily accessible income. Like you will have to do a payday loan or something. And then the longer it's in there, the more the storage fees rack up. Uh, uh, I've encountered individuals that have hundreds of dollars in storage Mm -hmm. fees because it only ever goes up.
0: So the ban was initially instated in 1980. Have there been any updates between then and
1: now? Uh, yeah. In the 90s, the uh, the sort of lakefront north side aldermen uh, banned together to get it removed from inner parts of Sheridan and Foster. So um, this, this ban was meant to make a contiguous grid. So that way you would have traffic flowing and the CTA buses can get around. But parts of it were removed from the north side back in the 90s. And people kind of forgot about that. So for anybody who lives in Rogers Park, there's a little corner of Clark and Devon that still has it. And then it's not attached to anything else. So it, it actually stopped going further south, you said this is
0: part of sort of I guess Chicago
1: um,
0: folklore, if you will, but but how do are people really aware of this ban like when it goes into effect because people are still getting told
1: yeah, so everyone 's like, well, read the signs, the signs are not very clear because we combined it with the two inch ban, which they, they they run synonymously, but so the overnight parking ban is on those major streets that I said earlier, but the two inch rules are on every arterial street in the city of Chicago. And they're not the same thing. The two-inch one is like if there's two inches or more snow, but that's the other component of the 1980 plan. And when I did uh, investigating on that, we found that only the south side was hit with tickets for those. The city can't logistically tow every single car off every single major street in the city. It's just, it's not possible. So it's kind of one of those things where we just have it up there, but it's it's part of folklore.
0: Well, Mayor Lightfoot uh, did take action on reforming the ticketing and debt collection system in Chicago. Is this something else we might see her administration take on?
1: I think that there's a lot of the different parts. So this is one aspect of the towing program, which includes crime-related tows, asset forfeiture, uh, driving on a suspended license, and and scoff laws in individuals that are indebted for ticket debt. So they have a lot of work cut out for them just to unwind all of these and the fines and fees associated with it. But it's also her first winner, and you can't fault her for not tackling all of Chicago's problems all at once in the first try.
0: That's it for Reset. Keep in touch with the show via Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. I'm at J White Pub Radio. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and let's talk again tomorrow.